Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Brewery Building Demolition Planned for March by Elizabeth Kelsey. Demolition of a portion of the Dubuque Brewing and Malting Company building now tentatively is scheduled to start next month. D.W. Zinser Company, the company hired by property owner and developer Steve Emerson, recently submitted a demolition schedule to the city of Dubuque. The schedule says crews with Zinser plan to mobilize and set up demolition equipment from March 11th to 15th. Demolition is set to follow from March 18th through April 5th, with site cleanup from April 8th through April 12th. Dubuque City Council members heard a brief update on the construction at Monday's meeting. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh said after the meeting that while the timeline is not entirely set in stone and several hurdles must be cleared, he is cautiously optimistic about the progress of the project. We've now seen steady progress over the past couple of months, moving in a direction of actually taking action on demolition, he said. I feel good about the direction we're going. An analysis of the building at 3000 Jackson Street in August determined it to be a significant danger to the public, prompting the closure of Jackson Street from East 29th to East 32nd Street. City officials demanded that Emerson, a Cedar Rapids, Iowa-based developer, stabilize the building and give him until December to submit a plan for doing so, but continued delays to develop a bracing system for the structure prompted Emerson to move forward with demolition instead. The area to be demolished would include all sections of the building that sit south of its archway entrance on Jackson Street. City staff previously stated this would eliminate any potential dangers to the public and allow for the reopening of that part of Jackson Street. Emerson purchased the roughly 125-year-old Dubuque Brewing and Malting Company building in 2017 with plans to convert the structure into residential units and commercial space. He did not respond to requests for comment on Tuesday. Last month, Emerson asked the city to contribute $500,000 to assist in the demolition process, a request council members verbally opposed. Earlier this month, demolition hit a road bump when, during the removal of asbestos-contaminated pipes, it was discovered that the mastic used to apply cork panels on the interior of the walls also contained asbestos. Demolition was halted until about 20,000 square feet of contaminated material could be removed, which Dubuque Assistant Housing and Community Development Director Mike Belmont said Tuesday is nearly complete. The last bit of asbestos abatement is happening now, he said. It should be wrapped up this week. Once contaminated material is removed, local utility companies must sign off on the demolition plan to ensure demolition can proceed safely. Housing and Community Development Director Alexa Stegner said at the Council's meeting Monday that Emerson and Zinzer representatives currently are working with Alliant Energy on that requirement. There is some electrical wiring going into the Brewing and Malting Company building that also feeds the currently occupied space 
of prairie farms. So they're going to need to re-energize in a different space to keep that electricity going, Steger said. We don't think there's any delays yet, but we do have to wait and see what Alliance says to keep that moving. Belmont said the March 18th through April 5th demolition timeline covers the third floor and spaces above the affected portion of the structure, including the building's towers. Emerson is requesting that the portion below the third floor be deconstructed in such a way as to save and recycle usable materials, which would mean deconstruction of that part would extend past April. Belmont said the city is recommending this approach only if there are no large breaks in this demolition process. Once the towers are down to the third floor, that takes away any concerns with the neighborhood that those towers could collapse, he said. Then the owner can take a little bit more time to salvage materials and finish the process, but we don't want any large gaps in the demolition. Kavanaugh said demolishing the upper stories as soon as possible will expedite the reopening of Jackson Street, but the overall project will take longer. As we expected, it's going to be a big undertaking, and I think the one thing that looks fairly certain is once demolition begins, it's going to take a couple of months from beginning to end, he said. The city requires daily updates from Emerson, and if they are not received, a daily site visit is conducted at 3 p.m. Any day that a reasonable amount of work is not completed and Emerson is unresponsive, a municipal infraction is issued. To date, no such infractions have been issued, according to Belmont. I think Mr. Emerson has been reasonably responsive, Belmont said. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I think we're moving in the right direction. The next story is Dubuque Police Outline Policy on Deadly Force by Andy Piper. It's midnight. A call comes over the police scanner about a burglary in progress. A suspect, allegedly armed with a knife, is trying to kick in the back door of a Dubuque home. A young Dubuque police officer arrives and walks around back with flashlight in hand. An individual is observed standing by the back door, holding a small, thin, metallic object. The officer shouts instructions. The individual complies and drops the metallic object, a silver Motorola Razor cell phone. That young responding officer is now Dubuque Assistant Police Chief Joe Meserick. Luckily, when I shouted commands, he followed them, Meserick said of the individual. Had he not, had he approached me, had he charged me with that silver object, I would have shot someone who was holding a cell phone. During officer-involved shootings that occur in cities coast-to-coast, it is often that split-second decision that is subject to scrutiny and sometimes leads to officers facing charges in a politically charged environment. Meserick provided Dubuque City Council members with Dubuque Police Department's policies and procedures regarding use of deadly force this week in an effort to educate the community. Reasonable is the key word in Dubuque's policy. The department defines reasonable use as force which a reasonable person in like circumstances would judge to be necessary to prevent an injury or loss and can include deadly force. 
if it is reasonable to believe that such force is necessary to defend against imminent danger of serious bodily injury or risk to one's life or safety or the safety of another. Reasonable belief is defined as what an ordinary and prudent person in the same or similar circumstances would believe based on his or her knowledge of the facts surrounding the event as they existed at the time of the event. The standards used in Dubuque's policy are based on two U.S. Supreme Court rulings, Graham v. Connor and Tennessee v. Garner. Graham v. Connor states, The reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with 2020 vision of hindsight. In Tennessee v. Garner, the Supreme Court struck down a Tennessee statute that permitted police to use deadly force against a suspected felon fleeing arrest. The ruling states, We conclude that deadly force may not be used unless it is necessary to prevent the escape and the officer had probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a significant threat of death or serious physical injury to the officer or others. Masaryk returned to his real-life experience to illustrate how the high court rulings might have come into play had he shot that burglary suspect holding a cell phone. If you look at the shooting on its merits, I would have shot someone who was holding a cell phone, Masaryk said. That doesn't seem reasonable, but when you put yourselves in the shoes of an officer, what that officer would have thought, that the suspect holding a knife, it was reasonable to shoot, to stop an attack. The last time an officer-involved shooting took place in Dubuque was in 2009. Two masked men, armed with shotguns, entered Nicker's Saloon at the corner of 22nd Street and Central Avenue over the lunch hour and demanded money. When they emerged from the business, they encountered a responding officer who was wounded but returned fire. Mesrick also responded to some commonly heard criticisms of police when the topic of officer-involved shooting arises. Mesrick pointed to a study conducted by Dallas Police Department in 2018, which showed that 35% of officer shots fired hit the target. We train to shoot at center mass because it's the largest target, Mesrick said. Think about the extreme stress of an officer-involved shooting. The attacker might be moving. I might be moving. There might be low-light conditions. The likelihood of hitting a similar target or smaller target is slim, even on a good day at the range. When officers discharge their weapons, they are doing it for one reason, to stop death. Tasers should only be used in situations that require a level of force that is less than deadly force, Mesrick said. There was a person in the downtown area who was having a bit of a mental health crisis, Mesrick said, of a past incident. He came at officers with a hammer. The officers tried to talk him down but couldn't get him to calm down. The officers used a taser and were able to de-escalate that situation. It was a huge success story. Mesrick said officers are trained to shoot until the threat has stopped. It's not like what is seen on TV. Wounded individuals can and do continue to resist and shoot back despite being hit. The officer's duty is to end the threat to the public, he said. The thought process is not to taint the jury pool, Mesrick said. 
if we just release raw footage, it can lead to a lot of comments and opinions on social media based on less than all the facts. It can taint your jury pool and makes holding a fair trial difficult. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh praised Meserick and the department for taking a proactive approach on the issue. You talked not only about the policies, but also why those policies are in place, Kavanaugh said. I appreciate knowing the philosophy behind the reasonable. We're talking about it because the likelihood of something happening, and we need to be ready. The last story from the front page is Meteorologist. Spring flood risk low due to lack of snow by Eric Hogstrom. To get a sense of potential conditions on the Mississippi River this spring, it might help to look at winter experiences 250 miles upstream. Last year, there were 100 inches of snow for the winter season in the Twin Cities, said John Haas, a meteorologist with the Quad Cities Office of National Weather Service. This year, we've had only 14 inches of snow. Haas said a relatively mild winter in the region is reflected in the first spring flood risk outlook issued by the Weather Service. Right now, we're going with a below-normal flood risk on the Mississippi River, Haas said. We're not expecting any flooding at all. Issued Thursday, the first of three flood outlooks produced by the Weather Service also called for near-to-below-normal flood risks on local tributary rivers. We are pleased to see the outlook, said Steve Braun, Grant County, Wisconsin, Emergency Management Director. It comes as no surprise with the lack of snow that we've had. Haas said spring snowmelt in locations upstream of the tri-state area is usually a contributing factor in determining if the Mississippi River will rise locally. This year, there's really no snow cover across Minnesota and Wisconsin, Haas said. There isn't much snow cover locally, either. Dubuque has received 36.3 inches of snow this winter, but only a trace this month. We had snow in January, but it has all disappeared, Haas said. Another contributing factor for spring flooding is saturated soil that can't accommodate spring rainfall. Soil moisture is not even an issue this year, because there is still drought in some places, Haas said. The U.S. Drought Monitor lists the Dubuque area as being abnormally dry, while a large swath of the region northwest of the Dubuque area remains under severe or extreme drought conditions. The Weather Service reports that widespread normal to below normal soil moisture levels in the local area increases the capacity of the soils to soak in spring rain. Haas said the Weather Service will issue two more spring flood outlooks in the coming weeks, on February 29th and March 14th. He said the flood risk will likely remain low unless the weather pattern suddenly changes and we get a ton of rain in March and April, which is hard to predict this far out. Braun said river flooding is only one of the severe weather issues the region faces as winter turns to spring. We're ramping up for severe weather season in another month or two, Braun said. Wisconsin's Severe Weather Awareness Week is held April 8th to 12th with the statewide tornado drill on April 11th. We're going to be doing some public awareness during Awareness Week. We will be testing our storm sirens and getting communities ready for the season, Braun said. Braun said the risk of flash flooding is an annual concern in the tri-state area. Unfortunately, 
the types of floods that are most devastating here are the ones we get no real warning for, Braun said. Turning to page two, Dubuque and Tri-State. This story is at the top of the page, NICC to slightly raise tax rate in FY25 by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dateline, Piasta, Iowa. Northeast Iowa community college officials will slightly raise the college's tax rate in the coming fiscal year. The college's board of trustees this week approved a tax rate of just over 94 cents per $1,000 of taxable valuation for residents of NICC's service area for the 2025 fiscal year, which begins July 1st. The college's current tax rate is about 93 cents per $1,000. The request to raise the rate is primarily to offset our rising insurance premiums, said Lexi Wagner, NICC Executive Director of Finance, during the trustees' meeting this week. The board's approval of the tax rate came as part of its overall $71.6 million certified budget for fiscal year 2025. That figure represents a decrease of about $3.4 million from last fiscal year's certified budget. After the meeting, NICC Vice President of Finance and Administration and Interim President Dave Dumms said the decrease is the result of several factors, including the completion of a $22.5 million renovation to the Piasta campus. All of those construction projects have now come to a close, and so all of those expenditures that have been relatively high the last three years are finished, he said. He noted that the college also has expended its federal COVID-19 relief dollars and has seen some reduction in its contracts with local businesses for job training, both of which contributed to the decreased certified budget. Dom said NICC officials still are wrapping up discussions for the college's internal budget. Some factors, such as the amount of state general aid community colleges will receive, have yet to be determined by the Iowa legislature for the coming fiscal year. He noted that NICC would be the beneficiary of a sizable increase in property values in its district this year. Typically, those property values run in that 2 to 3% increase range, and this year it approached 5% as we saw property valuations increase, he said. If that stays, that will provide extra tax base revenue coming in. Dom said the college's enrollment has remained largely stable in recent years, although NICC's 4,355 reported students in the fall of 2023 does represent a decline from five years previously. He added that NICC officials have not yet decided whether tuition rates will increase this fall. Currently, they are examining non-credit revenue streams in the business and community solutions sector, as well as focusing on finding efficiencies. We continue to focus on costs and how we can consolidate operations and do things more efficiently, he said. We focus on what we can control and we remain optimistic that the state will continue to invest in us as well as the other 15 community colleges and support the good things we all accomplish in our districts. Next is this story. Three candidates enter races for Iowa legislature seats by Benjamin Fisher. This year's races for Iowa state legislature seats representing Dubuque County 
are heating up quickly, with two Republicans and one Democrat announcing their bids recently. The Dubuque County GOP announced on Tuesday that County Party Vice Chair Nick Molo of Dubuque is running for Iowa Senate District 36, which is currently held by longtime Iowa Senator Pam Yoakum, Democrat of Dubuque, who announced last month that she would not seek re-election. The Dubuque County Democrats also announced Tuesday that Carolyn Wieserak is running for House District 65, which is currently held by Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican of Piasta. Republican Rod Warnke of Dubuque also announced his Republican primary bid Monday for House District 72, which is currently held by longtime Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhart, Democrat of Dubuque. Warnke will will face Jennifer Smith, who also ran for the House in 2022 in the Republican primary race for House District 72, making it the only current primary runoff for local legislative districts. Molo, 33, is the director of Molo Petroleum. He said he is running to give the city of Dubuque a voice in state government, according to a press release. The people of Dubuque are ready for a fresh start and looking for the next generation of leaders to move our community and state in the right direction, he said. Molo could not be reached Tuesday for further comment. Democrat Tom Townsend, a longtime local labor leader and a Navy veteran, previously announced his bid for Senate District 36. Wieserek is a longtime educator who retired in 2022 as principal of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Holy Family Catholic Schools Spanish Language Immersion Program. She told the Telegraph Herald that she was disappointed that voters in her rural Dubuque County District had not had a choice for the seat in 2022 because no one challenged Lundgren. She said her background in education would inform her service if elected. Part of my mission is in entering into this race is to help educate people because I think so often people are focused on the national level when so many things happen at the local level that affect people most directly, she said. Wieserich said she would prioritize increasing public school funding and push for transparency in decisions associated with it. She also said she is an advocate for local control of boards and commissions. Warnicke is a senior field claims representative for Farm Bureau Financial Services and a former member of the Dubuque Community School Board. He said in a press release that he would pursue many of the same policies as the Republican majority has in recent years, which include lowering income and property taxes, standing for pro-life anti-abortion policies, parental choice in education, and holding men financially responsible for the children they father. Warnicke could not be reached for further comment Tuesday. Now we have the news in brief column. Dubuque man sentenced to probation for possession of child pornography. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to two years of probation for possessing child pornography. James C. Peacock, 39, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Associate Judge Mark Hostager in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to two counts of possession of a depiction of a minor in a sex act. Uh, As part of a plea deal, two additional counts of possession of a depiction of a minor in a sex act were dismissed. Court documents filed by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation state that 
Dropbox Inc. submitted a tip to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children on July 13, 2018, about possible child pornography connected to a Dropbox account with a username listed as James Peacock. Authorities obtained a search warrant for the account and found what appeared to be child pornography in various folders in Peacock's account, document state. Findings were submitted to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which was able to identify 34 videos and 59 images that have been previously confirmed as child pornography victims, document state. Authorities also seized Peacock's phone and found images that depict child pornography, document state. Western Dubuque Principal Appointed Director of Secondary Education, Dateline Farley, Iowa. The principal of Western Dubuque High School has been tapped to oversee secondary education in the district. Jacob Feldman will begin his new role as Director of Secondary Education for Western Dubuque Community School District on July 1st, pending board approval, according to an online announcement. According to Superintendent Dan Butler, the Director of Secondary Education position is a new position created by an and administrative restructuring in the district's central office. Feldman has served as principal of Western Dubuque High School since 2017 and was named to the 2023 Iowa Secondary Principal of the Year by School Administrators of Iowa. Mr. Feldman's passion for education, unwavering dedication, and innovative leadership make him a great fit for this role, the announcement states. We are confident that under his guidance, secondary schools in our district will thrive. The announcement states that the search for the next principal of Western Dubuque High School will begin immediately. And then the police report. The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported the following. Jeremy D. Peterson, 36, of 1730 Westridge Court, was arrested at 624 a.m. Tuesday in Rickardsville, on charges of possession of methamphetamine, possession of marijuana, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Dalton W. Tharp, 3, of Holy Cross, was arrested at 6.26 p.m. Monday at his residence on charges of domestic assault and first-degree harassment. Reginald D. Harland, 56, of 1453 Washington Street, was arrested at 3.01 p.m. Monday in the 1400 block of Central Avenue on a warrant of charging domestic assault. And Bradley R. Robinson, 33, of Dyersville, was arrested at 9.39 a.m. Monday at the Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging assault causing bodily injury. Now we're turning to the opinion page and this column by Jim Swenson, titled, No Labels Must Get Voters Excited. If No Labels, the self-proclaimed unity ticket, wants to be more than a spoiler in the 2024 election and get people pumped up to vote for its candidate, it must come out bold and daring. Otherwise, it will end up just being another option that has no chance of winning. The group has said it plans to announce a possible run at the presidency after Supter, Super Tuesday, March 5th, but only if the choice is between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. While that appears obvious at this time, you never know in politics. Even though a majority of people in America don't want 
an election rerun of 2020, they'll have to be convinced that their vote won't be wasted on no labels. Plus, people will be wary of where no labels stands on the issues. The upstart party faces an extreme challenge in both areas. That's why it must be fearless and willing to take risks, giving Americans another choice and explaining why a Biden-Trump race is bad isn't enough. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West, among others, are doing that. What if no labels came out and said, give us four years to get Washington to unify and really get things done? If we don't, we won't run another ticket in 2028. Right away, no labels will be different, something that helped Trump win in 2016. It will not be the same old, same old political party, and much of the media, as well as social media, would immediately catapult the relatively unknown party into a household word by attacking and mocking it. Obviously, people will ask, how could that work? No. Number one, no labels must offer a ticket that includes a moderate Republican and a moderate Democrat, or a professed independent either way. It won't matter which it is which if the party follows the next point. Number two, the vice president must have an equal say and influence in every decision. Make both visible together as often as possible, even at press conferences where they could take turns answering questions. Number three, promise a multi-party cabinet similar to President Lincoln's. This bipartisan environment at the top could have two repercussions. First, the diversity of voices would lead to stronger decisions. And second, the majority of senators and representatives who are not on the extreme fringes would feel emboldened to compromise to get things done. Number four, no labels must also explain to voters that under its administration, every policy or bill would be fairly judged, debated, and brought to a conclusion through the give and take that every American goes through in their daily lives. Attempts by extreme individuals to block, distract, or deceive will be harshly dealt with by a majority who want to make progress. Number five, no labels should point out that no American child was raised to believe that he or she would get everything they wanted in life, and that compromise is a good thing leading to results. In other words, it must tell voters that in every way possible, no labels will run things in Washington, much like voters do in their homes, in regards to budget, policy, mutual respect, transparency, and even the golden rule. If no labels doesn't get voters pumped, it won't have a chance. And that is by Jim Swenson who retired from the Telegraph Herald in 2022 after 37 years in community journalism. You are listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 21, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Jane M. Gutierrez. Jane M. Gutierrez, age 82, of Dubuque, passed away peacefully at 1 a.m. on Saturday, February 17, 2024, surrounded by family at Bethany Home. To honor Jane's life, family and friends may visit from 10 a.m. until 12.45 p.m. on Friday, February 23, 2024, at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Funeral services will be held at 1 p.m. on Friday at Bear Funeral Home with Deacon Bill Biver officiating. 
Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery. Anne Aslan. Anne Aslan, 88, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 9.15 to 10.15 a.m. Tuesday, February 27th, at St. Columkill's Catholic Church, where a massive Christian burial will follow at 10.30 a.m. Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Thomas L. Boyle, Cascade, Iowa. Thomas L. Boyle, 84, of Cascade, died on Monday, February 19, 2024. Visitation will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, February 25th, at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade. Services will take place at 11 a.m. Monday, February 26th, at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade, followed by burial in Calvary Cemetery in Cascade. Vincent T. Weber, Ankeny, Iowa. Vince died at home on February 18, 2024, from kidney cancer. The family would like to thank the following for the compassionate care, Dr. Dan Burroker and team at Mission Stoddard Cancer Center, Stacy and Alicia and staff at Every Step Hospice, and Bill Strong, Armstrong and staff at Armstrong Funeral Home. Visitation will be held at Armstrong Funeral Home in Mount Air on Friday, February 23rd from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. with services beginning at 11 a.m. Burial will follow in Sweet Home Cemetery, north of Lessonville. Norma Evans, Sister Norma Evans, BVM, Adelaide, 93, of Mount Carmel Bluffs, 1160 Carmel Drive, Dubuque, Iowa, died Sunday, February 18th, 2024. Visitation will be from 9 to 9.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, in the Mary Frances Clark Chapel at Mount Carmel Bluffs. Sharing of memories will be at 9.30 a.m., followed immediately by the massive Christian burial. Burial is in the Mount Carmel Cemetery. K. M. Steinle, Galena, Illinois. K. Marlene Steinle, 82, of Galena, Illinois, passed away Sunday, February 18, 2024, at Allure of Stockton. A funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. Thursday, February 22, 2024, at the Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, where friends may call after 11 a.m. until the time of service. The burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery in Galena. Margaret E. Wasson Pratt, Galena, Illinois. Margaret Everett Maggie Wasson Pratt, 82, of Galena, Illinois, passed away Saturday, February 17, 2024, at her home. A funeral mass will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 24, 2024, at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Galena. Friends may call from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23, 2024, at the Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, where a parish rosary will be recited at 3.15 p.m. The burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery in Galena. Edmund Lau, Edmund, Ed Lau, passed away at 68 years old on the evening of February 16, 2024. He passed comfortably and peacefully in his home after being called to heaven by his late mother, Gladys Hummel. Family and friends will be gathering from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Friday, February 23, 2024, at the Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road in Dubuque, with a funeral service to begin at 12 p.m. with the Reverend Will Layton officiating.
A private family burial will take place at the Chatsworth Charlotte Cemetery in Chatsworth, Illinois. Joanne Sweeney, Savannah, Illinois. Joanne Sweeney, 91, of Savannah, died on Monday, February 19, 2024. Visitation will be held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. today at Law Jones Funeral Home in Savannah, where services will follow. Burial will follow in St. John the Baptist Catholic Cemetery in Savannah. Wayne Wisco. Robert W. Wisco, 90, of Dubuque, died on Monday, February 19, 2024. Private services will be held. Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory at 2569 John F. Kennedy Road is assisting the family. And funeral services, Mildred Clarkson Fryer, Preston, Iowa. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. today, St. John's Lutheran Church, Preston. Service, 11 a.m. today at the church. Thomas M. Clausen, Dubuque. Visitation, 1 p.m. today, Mount Olivet Cemetery, followed by entombment in the cemetery mausoleum. Todd M. Godden, Alcator, Iowa. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m., Thursday, February 22nd, First Congregation Church, Elkader. Service, 11 a.m., Thursday, at the church. Dennis C. Hoffman, Platteville, Wisconsin. Celebration of Life, 4 to 7 p.m. today, Melby Funeral Home in Crematory, Platteville. Billy Jean Klein, Oregon, Wisconsin. Visitation, 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 24th, Melby Funeral Home and Crematory, Platteville. Service, noon, Saturday, at the funeral home. Eugene J. Crawford, Dyersville, Iowa. Visitation, 2 to 7 p.m. today and from 9 to 10 a.m., Thursday, February 22nd, Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville. Service, 10.30 a.m., Thursday, St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Earlville. Linda K. Mushrush, Dyersville, Iowa. Visitation, 11 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 24th, Lord of Life, Lutheran Church, Asbury. Service, noon, Saturday at the church. Anne M. O'Hay, Dubuque. Massive Christian Burial, 10 a.m. today, St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Elena C. Orr, Dubuque. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 23rd, St. Clement Catholic Church, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Friday at the church. Dennis C. Scott, Maquoketa, Iowa. Visitation, 3 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 22nd, Carson Celebration of Life Center, Maquoketa. Service, 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 23rd at the center. And Grace M. Smith. Chicago. Visitation, 11 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. Saturday, February 24th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Service at 12.45 p.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Now turning to the sports page, we have this headline. Cougars take district in boys prep basketball. Cascade 62, Beckman 49 in Class 2A District Eight final by Danny Miller, Dateline, Manchester, Iowa. Dyersville Beckman Catholic was game once again. The Trailblazers just ran into a buzzsaw. Cascade stayed true as one of the state's hottest teams in a red-hot first-half shooting effort that helped lift the Iowa Class 2A number 10-ranked Cougars 
past rival Beckman 62-49 to in the District 8 championship game on Tuesday at West Delaware High School. Cascade moved within one win of its first state tournament berth since 2018 and will meet number six ranked West Burlington on Saturday in Iowa City. We're going to have a really three good days of practice, said Jackson Lawrence, who fronted Cascade with a game-high 22 points. We're going to have fun with this, too. we got to take time to enjoy this run. Mick Hoffman added 17 points, and Nathan Shakamal had 12 for the Cougars. It's been quite the run of late for the Cougars, winners of 13 of their last 14 games. That hot streak came with them on Tuesday. The Cougars shot 7 for 11 in the opening quarter and matched it in the second, converting 14 of 22 field goals overall in the first half. It felt really good to get off to a start like that, Cascade coach Nate McMullen said. We needed it too. Beckman said it really well there in the first half. The Blazers, looking to pull off their third straight postseason upset, nearly matched Cascade early. Led by three three pointers from Jake Wegman, Beckman made good on six of fourteen first quarter field goals to trail just nineteen to sixteen after one quarter. But Lawrence, Hoffman, and Shakamal combined to score all but three of Cascade's first half points as the Cougars carried a thirty seven to twenty seven lead into the break. It just felt good to come out with confidence and play like we did there in the first half, Hoffman said. Beckman has been playing really good, so we know, we knew we needed to come out with the first half like that. Lawrence scored two early third quarter baskets to put the Cougars ahead 41 to 31, but Blazers senior Eli Klusner kept his team in it. Klusner accounted for eight of Beckman's 13 three quarter point, third quarter points, bringing his team within 44 to 40 late in the frame. The Trail Blazers could get no closer though. Lawrence, Hoffman, and Shakamal accounted for all of Cascade's 13-0 run that stretched three-plus minutes into the fourth quarter and all but put the game out of reach, 60-42, to with three minutes and 29 seconds to play. We held it together during their run and just kept playing basketball, Lawrence said. That's the most important thing, not to overlook things or overthink things and just keep playing, Lawrence said. For the game, Cascade shot 24 for 43, or 56%, from the floor, including six three-pointers. Beckman drained eight triples and finished 19 for 45, or 42% overall. The Trailblazers closed their season at 7 and 17 and were led by Klusner's 15 points. Drew Thier added 13, and Wegman had 9. Beckman shook off a 10-game losing streak by beating Bellevue in its regular season finale before taking down Anamosa in a district opener and upsetting number number seven of 2A-ranked Monticello in a season-defining victory last Thursday to land the Blazers in their 10th straight district final contest. In life, everybody says when things get tough, people get tougher, Beckman coach Michael Maloney said. Our guys showed that this year. It doesn't surprise me with the kids we have here. They're proud of what it takes to be part of Beckman basketball. To have them carry it on when everyone outside of that locker room doubted that they could do it, 
I couldn't be more proud. Now turning to prep bowling for the Iowa State Tournament, Betcher finishes ninth in high-scoring state tourney by Jim Leitner. Zoe Betcher bowled 28 points over her average and shot a national honor count, and she fell one pin shy of reaching bracketed play. That tells you everything you need to know about the level of competition for the Iowa Class 3A Girls Individual State Tournament Tuesday morning at Cadillac Lanes in Waterloo. I was actually pretty nervous at first, said Betcher, who shot 242, 196, and 197 for 635 to place ninth. I'm a freshman, so it's my first time ever doing this, but I was really happy with all three of my games. I picked up pretty much all of my spares. But the competition was definitely pretty up there. There were so many good bowlers there. I mean, first place almost shot 800, which is a huge deal. Des Moines Lincoln's Vicki Andrews rolled at 268, 269, and 256 for 793 in qualifying before falling in the quarterfinals of bracketed play. Exactly half of the 32 bowler field shot national honor counts of 600, 600 or better in qualifying. Second-seeded Riley Schillinger, who shot 727 in qualifying, won the state title. Senior 12th grader Clara Pregler finished 10th with 223, 157, and 245 for 625, while junior Allison Hedrick placed 19th with a 157, 204, and 202 for 563. And senior Mackenzie Lang took 20th with a 168, 210, and 183 for 561. On Monday night, the Rams finished fourth in the team competition that lasted five and a half hours and wrapped up at 8.30 p.m. I'm so grateful for the experience I had in my freshman year, Petra said. My teammates were so nice and accepting. My coaches were amazing, and I had a lot of fun. They gave me the opportunity to go to state as a freshman, which is beyond amazing. I'm very excited about the next three years. Dubuque Hempstead junior Chloe Hansen finished 30th with a 114, 171, and 158 for 443. In the Class 3A Boys Individual Tournament, senior sophomore Zach Wolkel finished 11th in his second trip to state. He rolled games of 202, 223, and 257 for 682, just 26 pins shy of making the eight-player bracketed competition. Hempstead senior Alec Bowman took 32nd with a 178, 139, and 188 for 505. Marshalltown's Aiden Cowan, the 8th seed with a 708, upset top-seeded Zach Moorman after the Johnson bowler bagged a 744 in qualifying. Cowan went on to beat Waterloo West's Rush Steen 268 and 215 for the title. The Class 1A team. The Makokota the boys successfully defended their state title by defeating Comanche 3-2 in the semifinals and taking down Gilbert 3.5 and 1.5 in the final. The Cardinals earned the top seed with 3,376, 109 pins ahead of Gilbert. Makokota won the first two games against Comanche. 185 and 165 and 234 and 223 before the storm answered the winds of 224 and 214 and 278 and 220. The Cardinals won the decisive game 265 and 199. 
In the final, Makokita won the first game, 217 to 170, and the fourth game, 220 and 197, and the fifth game, 222 to 183. Gilbert won the second game, 248 and to 188, and the team shot matching 209s in the third. In the girls' tournament, West Delaware finished eighth after qualifying fifth. The Hawks fell to Charles City 3-1 before dropping a 3-1 decision to Council Bluff St. Albert in the eighth place match. Now we turn to girls' prep basketball. Waverly Shellrock 43, Western Dubuque 37 in the Iowa Class 4A Regional Final. Go Hawks hold off Western Dubuque by Steve Stoles. Dateline Waverly, Iowa. Life can be cruel on the road. The Western Dubuque girls basketball team learned that hard lesson Tuesday night at Waverly Shell Rock and were defeated by the Bobcats 43-27 in an Iowa Class 4A Region 2 final at Waverly Shell Rock High School. Western Dubuque battled foul trouble most of the game, and the Gohawks converted those fouls into nine free throws in the final quarter to hold off any Bobcat rally. We knew we were evenly matched with them, and I think you saw that in the first half, said 16-year Bobcat coach Amy Ostwinkle. It does make a difference when the calls are going their way. It forced some of our players to sit longer and get more free throws for them. We needed to be more disciplined on defense, and offensively, I thought we got out of rhythm in the fourth quarter. Despite the heartbreaking loss, Western Dubuque had a terrific season any way you look at it. After winning only seven regular season games the past three seasons, the Bobcats catapulted to 17 wins, won the Mississippi Valley Conference Valley Division Championship with a 11-3 and record, and tied Dubuque Wallard for the city championship with a 5-1 and mark. This was the second straight campaign in which Western Dubuque's season ended with a loss in that regional final. The progress these kids have made the last three years is amazing, Ostwinkle said. It's a credit to the players. They've worked their tails off for this, and they have a lot to be proud of. I told them in the locker room that at the end of the day, there is only going to be one winner at the end of the state tournament, and this team is a perfect example of what confidence can do for you. This was certainly a learning experience for the Bobcats, who return a solid core of players next season, starting with Carrington Asp. You have to play good basketball for 32 minutes in these situations. Waverly was able to do that on their home court, and credit to them, they are undefeated for a reason. This game was physical from the opening tip, and both teams struggled to get clean looks or get close to the basket. A basket by the Bobcats' Caitlin Thole, with 30 seconds left, gave Western Dubuque a hard-earned 10-9 lead at the end of the quarter. The Bobcats' defense continued to shine in the second quarter as they forced right Gohawk turnovers to stay close. Neither team could muster more than seven shots in the quarter, and two free throws by Asp pulled them within a point of at 2019 when the half ended. The game began to turn in the Gohawks' favor in the third quarter when Asp picked up her third foul with four minutes and 30 seconds left in the quarter necessitating a trip to the bench. Western Dubuque followed with a brutal 1-for-11 shooting stretch after that, but Waverly Shellrock could only manage two free throws and one basket during that stretch to up their lead slightly to 28-25 to after three quarters. 
After being held to one basket the first three quarters, Asp tried to lead the Bobcat comeback, scoring seven points in the first four minutes. However, her offensive outburst could not offset the Gohawks' parade to the free-throw line as they shot 15 free-throws in the final six minutes to gradually pad their lead. Asp, who sat for large portions of the second and third quarters, led all scores with 14 points. Brooklyn Furslaff followed with 8 points. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 21, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. 
It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 